0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 8th of the 9th. Michael, how have you been? I'm
1: fine, thank you, Gary. How are you?
0: I'm good. A couple of things to uh, go into today. There was one story we were going to talk about. That involves the Dublin Lord Mayor and this little bruhaha about LGBTQ pledge packs that were going to be delivered to schools
1: Hold on, LGBTQIA plus pledge packs.
0: Catherine opponent says LGBTQ and I assume she's the expert on this.
1: Well, on the pledge packs and on the Lord Mayor's Dubri, it said LGBTQIA plus.
0: Okay, fair enough. Let's let's go with that. We were going to talk about that today. Uh, unfortunately, I have a couple of questions in with the Department of Education about their policies in relation to uh, children signing pledges for anything, so we will hopefully have that in the next day or two which means we'll talk about it on friday hopefully sunday if not so with that behind us michael yeah we've been talking a lot about um winter on the show
1: winter is coming gary
0: winter is coming i think the the coldness of the winter and the shitness of Miho martin are now the number one and number two discussed topics (laughs) and just for the listener just as a, a preview This show is going to have both those things. So the business post is reporting it at the minute and it's being mentioned in a couple of other places that there has been a, um, should we say, rather large amount of alerts for Ireland's electrical system over the last year and over the last two years. More, in fact, in the last 15 months, according to the business post, than there were in the 10 years preceding that. Okay. And what these alerts are is basically, they're, they're called amber alerts, tight generation capacity margins, basically that there is going to be um, enough energy to meet the expected demand, but not a lot of reserve. So if anything goes wrong, you're going to start getting uh, power cuts. Right. And we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, Michael, and I know the business... Post has been reporting on it a lot as well. Really, the only people who seem to be reporting on it,
1: which I think is odd, because as I said to you last week, I think this is the single biggest news story in Ireland today, and I, I'm not, I certainly a lot bigger than Zapone and whatever. I mean that that has its own ramifications, which are important for meta narratives, blah blah blah. But actually, practically speaking. To, to directly affect both the lives of citizens and the, the economy and manufacturing and industry. This is a huge story, which just does not seem to be gaining a whole lot of traction.
0: No, no. And actually, I was saying there about the past 15 months, we've had so many alerts. In the past 15 months, there have been seven alerts of this type. Now, in the 10 years preceding that, there were 11 alerts. So that is a rather substantial worsening of the situation.
1: Yeah, I think by any... Any reasonable standard that would be re- regarded as things is getting bad.
0: So the risk here, of course, is that they're working to ensure that this isn't a problem over winter. But if things don't go to plan, it will be a problem over winter, and you could see rolling blackouts. Now you see that, and it's a bad winter. People will die.
1: You say you say it. You say if it if it goes to plan. But it depends which plan you're talking about, Gary. So if, for example, you had a plan which was to reduce the amount of heating in Irish homes, which was generated, say, from coal or from wood or other f- similar fuels, and increase the amount of heating which is coming from electricity, well, that would be a different plan and a plan that might actually, rather than protect you, provoke a uh, a power outage when it came to the uh, tight, constricted supply of electricity.
0: But Michael, any person capable of implementing such a policy would be entirely up to date on the problems facing the electrical grid. So why would they do those things?
1: If, certainly, if that was, say, the person who was responsible for energy in the country, you would imagine that they would be very much up to date on the problems facing the grid and would be looking at plans... To mitigate those problems, and who who is who is the person responsible, Gary, for that?
0: I believe it's it would it would be Eamon Ryan, wouldn't
1: it? Yeah, I believe so. And what, what is Eamon doing?
0: We've talked a lot on this show about politicians doing things without thinking of the consequences. And usually we mention the ever-increasing regulations around building. And so they're, they're so happy about these increased standards and, ah, if it pushes up the price of houses and people can't afford it, well, you know, fuck them. But this, I think, <laughs> could actually be a new example. So we have had we have this reporting on the problems facing the electrical grid. We've seen a massive increase in the amount of warnings that we're getting close to capacity. There is a lot riding on getting this winter right. And they're trying to bring stuff online. They were already trying to get energy um, to bring in generators from foreign countries and that fell true, which was already a massive fuck up. But you're the Minister for Energy and what you decide to do, if you're Eamon Ryan, Michael, is you think that what I've got to do now is I've got to tighten up the regulations on the burning of solid fuels in urban areas. Towns, villages, cities. Which is to say, Michael, your idea is that you are going to put in place something that will increase demand on the electrical grid.
1: Well, it very much sounds like that, yes. That is the the logical outcome, I would say, of this plan. Um, unless he has some kind of secret plan to make sure that everybody does this through the burning of natural gas. I don't know. He's going to go around delivering coal and gas.
0: There is a bright side to this, Michael. They're saying they're not going to tighten up the rules right now. It's going to be in place before next winter. Oh! So what we can do is we can see, you know, if things go well this year, we'll say it's fine, and then we'll just prep ourselves for it going catastrophically wrong in the future. But if it goes badly this year and some elderly people, you know, freeze to death, well, Michael, we, we know, we know, according to Eamon Ryan, that air pollution is linked to 1,400 deaths in Ireland every year. So if less old people freeze than that... The policy is a morally good one.
1: I think the word connected is probably doing quite a lot of work there. I, I notice the word is not caused by, but connected with. That's not to say that I don't believe that particulate uh, pollution is responsible, say, for ex- the causing or exacerbating people with respiratory uh, illnesses or res- respiratory problems. I'm sure it is. But uh, 1400 is connected with, that's, I don't, that's just a small point. Just a curious use of language there. Well, you know, can I alleviate your concerns a little bit, Gary? Can I, can I take away some of your worries? Please do. I'm delighted to tell you that Leo Varadkar was tweeting today about the Celtic Interconnector. Now, a lot of people don't know about the Celtic Interconnector. So that's what we're, we're doing our job here of public as a public service announcement. Now, the Celtic Interconnector is going to... Con, is, the idea is we're going to connect France and Ireland and to update and increase uh, our security of supply, reduce the cost of energy and help us achieve our climate objectives and that's all great news and I think we should be very happy. Now there is one small, how would I say, proviso. We haven't actually started building the Celtic Connector yet.
0: I, from what I recall wasn't that meant to be finished in somewhere between 2025 and 2030?
1: Well, we're hoping to start construction in 2022, which will be next year.
0: Uh, it's an underwater cable being overseen by the Irish state, which runs from Ireland to the coast of France. Um, are, we, are we overseeing the building or are the French overseeing the building?
1: Well, fingers crossed the French are.
0: Yes. I mean, whatever. whatever about French bureaucracy... They generally know what they're doing in regards to certain parts of the energy market.
1: And the, the hope and the expectation is that they will start building next year and they will finish building somewhere around, say, 2026. Now, the first thing we should say is it doesn't look like there may be very as many planning issues with this as there would be perhaps if we were doing something actually in Ireland. 500 kilometres of this is going to be under the sea. And as far as I know, Antashka does not actually have a, any kind of uh, legal purview over things being done under the water of the sea. So we should be okay there. On the other hand, that's still five years away, and that's assuming it all goes to plan. So, so as I say, very much fingers crossed the French are building this, not us.
0: And did he, did he mention why it was a good idea to take energy from the French? or? Why they have so much energy? They just seem to be so eager to sell to people.
1: Well, uh, we want to get the French, because the French make lots of electricity, Gary, and they do it in this wonderful, wonderful very clean, and very good for the for the environment. Um, and it's 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 all a no brainer, really. And I can I can tell you if you, for example, if you are worried that only one point six, only one point six terawatt hours. Of electricity in France was produced by coal and 2.3 terawatts was produced by fuel. Now that
0: wouldn't happen to be Michael because over 70% of France's natural grid is powered by nuclear energy would it?
1: Well it's funny you should say that but 379.5 terawatts of power generated of electricity generated in France is in fact from nuclear power. So just to get that numbers, because we're just throwing numbers out here now, just to get that in in people's head, we'll round it up a bit. So 380 terawatts from nuclear nuclear, uh, generation. The next highest source of generation, 380, next highest is 55, which is hydropower, 38 from gas. 34 from wind, 11 from solar, and 9.9 from bioenergy. So I'd say, yeah, in and around. If you added all of the rest of them up, I don't think they'd come quite to a third of the total power generation. So I don't know, could you say that this is a kind of an indirect endorsement of nuclear power generation uh, as the
0: solution to creating, uh, generating electricity
1: in the context of the climate
0: emergency? Well, Michael, I think if, uh, if you were a country, let's say, that seemed on the verge of having uh, your electrical grid shut down in parts of the country on a rolling basis, if you don't get your plans in place for winter and it's not looking good, and you have to go ask a friend who's doing much better than you for help because they're do- using nuclear energy, I think that could be seen as a um, as a solid sign for nuclear energy, powering our hopes and dreams.
1: Indeed, as it's pointed out, I think it was, uh, the the numbers I have are from around 2018, when 71.5% of the total power generation in France was from the nuclear power. Uh, it is it it observed in a very neutral fact that the French production follows a different path to its neighbour Germany, where Germany has discre- decreased the nuclear share in its energy mix from 29.5% to 11.7% in 2017. Now, the thing about that, Gary, is I think I mentioned the last time one of my throwing out another fun fact. One of the largest power generating plants in Europe has been recently built in Germany, it was built in 2020. And obviously the Germans are very committed to the whole green agenda and they're very aware of the climate emergency. So they decided they would build this massive plant generating, I think it was 100 megawatts of power or whatever it was. It was a very big plant anyway, and it is using coal, Gary, which is famously uh, climate uh, friendly. So it's good to see that there. French public opinion levels tend to express fewer support for nuclear power generation, strangely but i think that the the question apparently that they don't like is well would you be willing to pay more money for your electricity and do you think that if we were reju- we would all, would you also support reduced energy consumption if uh if if that was what we would have to do to get rid of nuclear power plants and the the support seems to fall away a little bit yeah yeah
0: if only germany hadn't cl- closed all of its nuclear power plants
1: Well, they had to Gary because if you remember there was an earthquake in japan
0: it, there was actually and for those who or perhaps you're too young to remember that, or think we're joking. No, the German government did do that after Fukushima. They decided they would close all of the uh, all of their nuclear power plants. Now they were never they were never terribly. There's always been a, a split in opinion about them. But uh, I have here seen some wonderful studies, Michael, about how many people died as a result of that because of air pollutants. Which, as you'll know, Michael, because we just brought it up are linked to deaths
1: in in Fukushima or the abandonment of nuclear power because
0: the abandonment of nuclear power the amount of people that killed in Germany it's many multiples of uh, Fukushima which to be honest isn't very difficult
1: (laughs) well no in fact that's a slightly play with numbers there as accidents go it was it was not a huge big accident and remember also that for Germany what they're actually using hard coal I want to be fair they're using hard coal in its new plant but Germany has very, very large supplies of lignite or soft brown coal, which it has basically recently, because it had after the nuclear closure, it had it had to expand its these massive basic sort of open cast mining for brown coal. They had to move a whole village, which in Ireland the context is actually a town, just to move it because they had to. It was going to basically fall into the hole. So and while whatever about hard coal brown coal is really really dirty
0: that plan from Ryan is not due to come in this year but what is due to come in this year is a public awareness campaign which is meant to stay lar- later th- it's start later it's meant to start later this month and is going to be designed around the idea that householders who are burning solid fuel fires should be you know asked to go to cleaner heating sources if possible According to the Business Post, one of the messages that it's going to ask the public is going to be, do I need to light a fire? So there will be a campaign to get people to use other sources of heating, such as, for instance, drawn directly off the electrical grid, Michael. Yeah. Uh, As we go into a winter where we've had warnings about rolling blackouts and the government's plans to try and stop that from happening don't seem to be going terribly well. And no one thought to themselves... Should we do both of these things at once?
1: This is what you call joined up thinking or the opposite of joined up thinking.
0: But also like we were talking before about the, we're talking about Leo in London and how it was perfectly legal. He looked like he complied with all regulations when he was over there. But it's, if you're in a leadership position, it's not about, you know, acting in a way that's legal. It's about the image you put forward and how it can be used against you. If Ryan does this and we see the winter go badly, and let's say some people do die, because we see, we've seen that happen when these sort of things happen across the world. These things happen, and it's sad, but they do happen. So let's say that happens. A couple of people die, Michael. And yeah. someone asks Eamon Ryan if the campaign telling people to use the electrical grid during the winter, when he knew the electrical grid was in bad shape, was perhaps the wisest idea.
1: I was looking for the figures, and I'm not as good as you, Gary, at rooting these things out on the interweb. But I'm curious, and I don't expect you to know this, but I'm just throwing it out as a a curiosity. We know that over the period of the pandemic that we had, what was it, seven?
0: Over 15 months, seven of these things, yeah.
1: 15, number Now, we also know that economic activity in the country was considerably less than would normally be the case.
0: By an incredible margin, actually.
1: And I'm just, what I just wondered, Gary, was normally you one of the things you associate with economic activity is energy consumption. So if nothing else, if you think all of the hotels, all of the restaurants, all of the pubs and all of the shops that were closed and not consuming energy, right? And over the period of time where they were not consuming energy, where they were not drawing electricity from the grid, we had seven alerts over that period. If you then move out of that period and the economy reopens and it happens to do that over winter, and by the way, you may have noticed Gary, in winter it tends to be darker than in summer. So people use electric light a lot more, for example, and things like that. But you have the economy returning to normal. So you have energy consumption and drawing down from the grid but returning to normal levels. And if you then happen to get a particularly cold winter, I just wonder if anybody has done the numbers on that. I, You see, it, there's part of me, which is of course they have, for God's sake, I mean, these people. But you know what, Gary, I'm getting to the point after my experience of the last X number of years living on this planet in this country, that I'm no longer willing to assume that what seemed like basic provision and basic planning actually have taken place. But you, do you see my point? that if we we had seven number of alerts at a period where I imagine I don't know for a fact but you'd have to imagine that demand on the grid was considerably lower than it normally would have been
0: so would you perhaps be suggesting Michael that uh, if things are this bad now what are they like when all the restrictions go off just before winter
1: are indeed in the heart of winter i, I what the christmas lights go on will they go will they stay on gary i mean one of the when when people have been asking people in the Business Post and people in the sector, not widely publicised, they've been asking, lads, what's the plan here, right? Because the, up to now, our energy policy basically has been a series of statements of what we're going to stop doing, or actually actions where we stop. So, for example, we have stopped. We we have decided to stop the production uh, of peat moss. You know, For horticulture and things like that, and garden centres, because it's bad for the. Now, we, don't worry, Gary, we are importing peat moss as we, from Germany and other places, so you can still get it. We have stopped, or are in the process of stopping the production of briquettes uh, for the burning in the fires, but don't again worry, Gary, we are also importing the briquettes from Germany. So that makes perfect sense. We've closed down the turf burning fire power stations. We have decided that we're going to stop looking for natural gas or oil, obviously, but, but even natural gas in the waters around our country. We have decided we are not going to go to Leitrim and frack natural gas there. So we have taken all these things off the table. And I can't see anybody coming along with a tray of things that they're going to put on the table. The only thing that I'm aware of that we're talking about replacing this, these, these energy sources, or indeed boosting the grid, you probably notice, Gary, our population is back up to five million, and we're heading towards Mir- mirabile dictu, we may we may even soon be at a state where the the population of the island will be back to what it was in 1845. You know, God, we're really doing well, aren't we? Think about those people. So the economy, the number of people in the country is growing. The economy is growing. Energy consumption is growing. We have designed a situation where heating in houses is going to be electrical. Cars, we want all the cars to be electrical. They want the buses to be electrical. Plan is that if we ever get trains, they may even be electrical. Trams, more trams, more buses will all be electrical. But other than the electrical the 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 Celtic Collector, which they're going to start building next year and will take four years with the help of God to build. There's nothing else except for was it Eamon Ryan was said, the technologies that will solve this problem have yet to be invented. Which I don't think it was a council of despair, that was Eamon actually thinking he was saying something positive and hopeful about the capacity of human beings to engineer solutions to problems.
0: I can't I can't remember the exact quote. I know we discussed it in a previous episode and I put the link to when he brought it up in the doll his exact words. That might not be the exact phrasing he used, but that was the general idea of it explicitly. There needs to be further innovation uh, and creation of technologies here to enable us to hit these things. I to be honest, I don't really get what's happening here. It seems like there is a severe problem with the grid. And it seems to be getting worse. The solutions they've put forward seem to have either failed or now if they're moving in the right direction, there's a question of, well, are they moving enough in the right direction? And no one in government seems to be terribly cognizant of this as an issue.
1: If we take away for a moment the problem, which is the acute problem, the right now problem, rather than the chronic problem of energy production in the medium to long term. If we look at that, it is my understanding from talking to people, Gary, and you may correct me on this because I may be wrong, that while we all want renewable energy to work, and we all want to be able to use solar power and hydropower and wind power and wave power and tidal power and biomass power and hope and and I'm actually confident that eventually somebody will find a way of doing this, that there will be somebody who will find a new way of doing a battery, a completely new way of doing it. But up Right now, those technologies, particularly the technology which we are reliant on, which is wind, that's the direction we're going. All of these powers require a backup because they're not, you can't guarantee that they will always be online. So that to maintain the grid as you would expect the grid to be in a normal developed first world country, you have to have at the the back of that a system which is, based on, shall we say, natural gas or coal or some one of the, or nuclear or whatever. But you have to have a backup. And right now, we don't have the renewables. So we're de- what, all we have is, in a sense, what would invent, eventually be the backup. We don't, we, we don't even have the backup. You, it, there's a chronic problem here which isn't being addressed. It's just all airy-fairy hope.
0: And actually part of the problem here is the amount of wind energy. Some of the amber alerts have been primarily it seems to have been caused by low wind speed. Yeah. That that's it, just low wind speed. But wind farms are so much of our power supply that you get that. And in other countries, you'd have backup generators that would come online and they would take the load. Because you have to an electrical grid has to be able to take you don't design it around the average, you design it around the peak, what you will need. Because if you don't design it around that, well, then at some point, power is going to go out uh, to some area. But we have a massive amount of renewables that have some issues, shall we say, and we don't have the generator capacity to back it up. So if things hit the wall, they hit the wall badly. But that would seem on itself to be a shambolic mess, which should never have been allowed to happen.
1: No, and we constantly hear people saying things like, we can be a renewable superpower because we have the Atlantic out there, and because it's very windy in Mayo and very windy in Donegal, we have the capacity to generate buckets and buckets. We can be exporting energy all over the gaff. And the plan is apparently that we're going to go out into the Atlantic, maybe beyond the horizon so people can't see these things. I'm going to build hundreds of square miles. Now, if that is the plan, fine, but that's going to take a certain amount of time, Gary, I suspect.
0: This, this was something I was particularly interested when I was younger. Because it seems like a good solution, intuitively, Um, the placing of offshore wind farms. And I looked into it. It is more difficult than it sounds, and it's far more expensive than it sounds. It's very expensive. And stuff in the ocean has a tendency to break.
1: Now, we'll be talking about so many stuffs in the ocean that even if a few of them broke, it shouldn't make that much difference. But the Germans have been looking at this. and they, they were looking at what they'd have to do from the point of view because solar. The Germans have been trying really hard on solar. And again, it may be the case that as the technology of the, the photocells gets better and better and better, that solar cells will become more and more uh, a practical solution. But at the moment, not there. So they were looking at what, and they were talking about having to put a bit of the North Sea where they have access under 300 square miles of wind farms. I mean, you're talking, I mean, the level of investment and the capacity to do that. And I don't know what that's going to do with shipping lanes and fish stocks and environmental concerns, et cetera, et cetera, seem to me to be.
0: Actually, the, um, the funny thing about your point about when the technology improves, they might do certain things. That's absolutely true. But one of the the funny things about this is this. When that technology improves to such a point that it's just seen as better functioning, more efficient, and it becomes a clear winner, if that happens, the people who never invested in solar energy are probably going to have a big advantage because it's easier to build than it is to retrofit.
1: Certainly. And I'd also point just as a, as a passing observation, one, we are actually, it, it's, I suspect, involved in a process which is actively mitigating against the kind of innovation in this technology that we would like to see. Because what's happening all over the world, it's happening in the United States, it's happening in Europe, is governments picking winners government's picking a technology and saying, "Okay, that's the technology we like the look of. That's the one we're going to give the big tax breaks to. That's the one we're going to give the investment money to. And we're going to invest in that. And, of course, the problem with governments investing in anything is that they're naturally, like all politicians, like all human beings, they don't like to admit they're wrong, particularly if they've invested tens of billions in something. And after 10 or 15 years, they look at it and say, you actually... It looks like we may have gone down a bit of a cul-de-sac with this technology or this approach. Let's go somewhere else because that's not the kind of message that voters hear very well. So rather than just letting the thing float and pick whatever wins wins, we're, we're picking winners. I could just throw in there, Gary, one of my favourite little fun facts that the Germans have observed is a problem with throwing all these wind farms out into the North Sea where it gets windy and cold, Gary, is that the turbines do not work when it is A, too cold, or B, too windy.
0: On the the subject of the electrical market, it's incredibly distorted by subsidies and grants. And as you said, governments and large international bodies picking winners. So there are certain types of renewables where you can find incredible amounts of money, and others where there's basically no interest in it. Yeah. And that is absolutely shaping the way people are going around things. The only problem there is that, um, as, as you rightly pointed out, if you pick a winner and the winner turns out to be shit, but you're still throwing billions at it, that provides a real incentive to companies who might have looked at something and went, it works, but is this the best way of doing it? Is there something else we could do that would be more efficient or work better and instead say, no, let's focus on that and we'll try and fix the problems. Because there's this massive wall of money there for us.
1: I mean, some economists will say that and not just in this area, but generally speaking, that in this kind of situation you see an effect which is called crowding, where government, massive government investment, either direct subsidy, or tax breaks or whatever, has an effect of crowding out investment or uh, from private sources, and it also you end up, as you say, involve, get directing the money in a way which Means as you, I remember reading a, a series of articles written by people, and they, they they may have had their own axe to grind. Sometimes, carry they people do. That one of the reasons we were so heavily we had gone so heavily down a particular direction with wind energy was to the fact that the Danes were driving uh, a lot of the policy in Europe about this. They were because, but strangely, the Danish companies that were were actually the world leaders in this particular technology. And at one stage, there were producers like 70% of the world's particular kind of wind turbine. And that, therefore, there was a very heavy Danish interest in making sure that the EU policy... And when you get a, a situation where one person is very, very engaged and very passionate and very informed about something, and other people aren't really that bothered. It's amazing how a small person, a small group of people can have an effect on public policy. So anyway, we know that, for example, when we saw a lot of the, uh, say the solar solar subsidies and other subsidies in the United States. Those companies saying basically, listen, either you renew all of those subsidies, and tax breaks that you're going to you were giving us up to now, or else we're just going bust. And in fact, under Trump, that's what a lot of them did. They just a hell of a lot of them just went bust, because without that support, they couldn't keep going. So, it's a it's a tricky old game and. Intuitively, it sounds like a good idea that governments should be involved in supporting research and development in new technologies. The problem is that inevitably governments get involved in picking which technologies. Even if they don't want to, just that's the way it happens. And as you said, Gary, the problem then is that that companies or individuals who might be interested in other things, in other approaches or other ideas, they follow the money because that's what you do
0: that's not to say that the government can't put money into something and it turns out to be a winner. And it turns out to be a winner sometimes in a way that might have taken private businesses decades to realize. Sure, that can happen. The problem I have is that it's only ever the successes that are brought up, but at the core of this is not, can the government give money into an area and subsidize it heavily and pick a winner and come out with a winner? Because it obviously can. It's how much do you trust the government with your money to yeah. do that. If they make a hundred guesses, how many times do you think they'll be right? And how many do they need to be right before you think it's worth it? Just on a practical level, not on an ideological level. I think that is the, the practical objection to it. So it's shaping up to not be a great winter. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the steps they're planning come together and we don't see this issue. But it seems to be progressing in a certain way and there seems to be absolutely no interest in stepping in from the government side of things to try and fix it. Ryan seems to basically be non-existent. And when he does exist, he comes out with stuff like this, which he could not time worse if he was trying. But then again, I suppose if it's going that badly, I mean, when is a good time for you? I don't know. I, don't... I mean, some people might say, Michael, that in this instance, when you're seeing this sort of pressure, It might actually be good to tell people to just burn some stuff in their homes. Cut down a tree. (laughs) Do it this winter. Yeah. Now, the Green Party won't because, like, it's the Green Party. And actually, government as a whole wouldn't because that's the sort of idea that you'd have to go against the civil service on. And we're not going to be seeing that for the next generation, at least. On the subject of the government, Michael, this opponent thing keeps going. And it's gone from... A tiny thing, to a tiny thing, to a tiny thing, to now it looks like you lied to the doll about a thi- tiny thing. Why haven't you resigned yet? Simon Coveney has managed to turn. Now, to be fair to Simon, he was set up by a member of his own party to look bad. So I don't think we can we can blame all of that on Simon. Mm. But it is hard to look at some of the interviews Simon Coveney did when this story first broke. And listen to what he has to say and listen at what he's saying now and the texts that have been put out and come away with the idea that Simon Coveney was full and frank and honest in his dealings with either the public or the doll. And were we in a country with looser defamation restrictions, Michael, I think you might be hearing quite a lot said about Simon Coveney's relationship with the truth. And whether or not there was an intent to deceive behind what he was saying. Mm. I think that would be quite likely. You know you're saying about small and small and small and small. I
1: I was fed up, frankly, and bored with this a while ago. And, and yet, they have now reached a point where you can't just... You're, I'm dragged back into it by the, just the, the nonsense of it all. When I was a kid, Gary... There was a certain kind of thing. There was, so let me act on this. I'm a comedian, and it's absolutely true. When I was a child growing up, watching TV, you you saw a rattlesnake at least twice a week. It would make an appearance. There used to be a lot of cowboy shows and things. But one of the noises in my childhood was the, the sound of a rattlesnake rattling. And you knew, like, oh, my God. Another thing that used to be an absolute staple of Saturday morning children's television were films set in jungles somewhere it could have been africa could have been south america could have been tarzan could have been something else like that and one of the things that would be a part of the story were ants scary ants that were these ants that would suddenly appear and they would get across river and then they would eat cities and consume cows and everybody was running away from the ants now the thing about it, each individual ant very small little thing not really capable of doing anything but when you got hundreds and hundreds, th- and and I have a feeling it's a little bit like that. It's just one tiny thing, one small thing, one small thing. But now this fucking, the government is now being consumed by them, by statement after statement after statement after statement, which each of which sounds less and less credible than the one before it. And you're thinking, it's possible. It is actually possible that this is going to just explode the fucking thing. I said to you, I don't know if we mentioned it on the on the podcast, I think it was, we did, I'd had a conversation with a friend of ours who was a prominent uh, member of the academy, the academy, shall we say, who, and we are having lunch and he said, you know what he should have done, this was only when this thing was beginning, if Michael Martin had any sense at all, let alone any balls, what he should have done was sack Coveney, bang, on the spot, and turn around to Leo and said, are you going to do something about it, what do you say, it would have made him look decisive, strong. He could have. He had a very good argument. He could say that he had not shown the correct understanding of the of nuance. He he had shown himself not to be sure-footed. Lots of he could. There were plenty. There was no way in the world that Leo was going to pull the government down, on and go to the country on on the basis of we don't want Sam Coveney to be sacked, and that would have been a very good move then. Right now, Gary, it's getting to the point where if he doesn't sack Coveney. He's looking like he's just I an mean, even more of a Ludramon and a weak and pathetic, ineffectual leader than he does at the moment.
0: The problem he's created for himself is that he not only decided that he was going to let this ride, he yeah. decided that Finafal was going to support Fine Gael in this, which is its own thing. Let's focus on Martin in a second, but. On the matter of, of Simon Coveney, Simon Coveney comes out, does these early interviews. He says he wasn't lobbied by Zippone. Yes. I have seen the uh, the texts that were sent between Simon Coveney and um, Catherine Zippone. They're publicly available. I assume everyone has seen them. If I, because I am I am a registered lobbyist. Indeed. If I had engaged in that behavior and I did not report that as lobbying... In that exact situation, I would fully expect to be deemed to be in breach of the Act.
1: I think you would be, that would be a reasonable understanding of, of, of the Act. I'd also say, just in passing, that the tweets show that Catherine has a fairly, shall we say, developed sense of her own capabilities and usefulness.
0: Yeah, I mean, as someone who is familiar with this sort of thing, and you know, going to personal friends for things of this nature... Catherine's opponent has a neck like a jockey's bollocks.
1: <laughs> she does indeed
0: I just this endless stream of can I have a job please
1: but also the, the fact that if I want this job to get another job because if I get this job that will put me in a very good if I one year will be okay but two years will be better to give me that you know to give her the opportunities for networking
0: It turns out that she was involved in in rewriting the job spec for the (laughs) job that was definitely not created for her. And she increased the term of it because she felt it would be more appropriate. And then did you see Simon Coveney today, or is there yesterday, when he was talking about this because he was back before the Dole Committee again. And what he said about it was, well, I can see why uh, many people (laughs) would see this as lobbying, but I didn't see it as that.
1: No, no. Am I right? I, 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 I don't want to get myself in trouble. On the timeline of this, the design of the position anticipated the actual, shall we say, the offer of the creation of the post from the UN.
0: So there is, there is a, there is a debate here now. I think some of the newspapers are reporting it did. Some are reporting it didn't. Some are saying that Zapone was aware of the job before anyone in the department was, and some are saying. It wasn't. Either way, I think they're just going to say, well, Catherine misunderstood the situation. And we'd simply said that this would be a good thing to have. So you, you have that. That's that's one of the things that Simon Coveney said early on. That there was no lobbying for it. Well, it damn well looks like there was lobbying for it. Then he says that, well, the Fine Gael ministers only found out 20 minutes before the meeting. Correct. That makes it a little bit awkward that there's texts between him and Leo discussing it. And there's talk of Pascal also knowing... And then you you start kind of, well, what I meant was it was 20 minutes before that certain Fine Gael ministers became aware of it, which I would say is a very different point. Then he said, of course, that this was a media-created story. And well, it's a news story. All news stories are media-created stories. But the, pro- the situation has now moved from Catherine's opponent was, uh, had a job, which I, again, I never thought should be the main story. I should have the, the breach of the constitution by the person who leaked it but then it went to simon and then it went to i am um, issues with exactly what was being said and now i think the interesting thing is what should happen with martin stephen donnelly went on radio and this was a this was not a good line he he went on with claire byrne and he was asked whether or not the Taoiseach would sack simon coveney whether or not he could sack simon coveney and he said he couldn't say definitively if the Taoiseach has the authority to sack a Fine Gael minister. Because this is a coalition, and this is an exact quote, This is a coalition, and in a coalition government, one party does not tell another party who they can and can't have a cabinet. But they,
1: no, uh, yes they can. Insofar as the Taoiseach is a member of one of those parties. The Taoiseach decides who is in the cabinet. The cabinet, this is just bizarre. I'm sorry, I'm genuinely honest words. He appoints, not after discussions and agreements and whatever, but it is the teacher who appoints the cabinet. And he can hire and fire at will. He will direct the president, who is constitutionally required, by understanding, to accept that recommendation. If he wants to sack a minister, he sacks the minister. He is the He's the chairman of the board. He is the president of the executive, if you like, of, uh, of the cabinet. And he, if he wants someone gone, he goes. After that, what Fine Gael want to do about it is up to Fine Gael. But Fine Gael do not have the right to veto the Taoiseach. The Taoiseach decides to sack a member of the cabinet.
0: no, the Irish constitution is full of ghetto clauses and provisos and a hundred different ways to get through it, except in this section. This section is explicit that these people rule at the pleasure of the Taoiseach and technically you could argue that it's the president who gets rid of it but when you actually look at the constitutional language it says that the Taoiseach will give a recommendation that a minister should be sacked and then it says the president will accept this recommendation so constitutionally president doesn't even have a choice they are a rubber stamp on this Now, you could say, okay, maybe he doesn't mean constitutionally. Maybe he means politically. And, you know, that sort of thing would never happen. Oddly enough, and here's a a nice little Irish political uh, trivia. This situation happened before in reverse with Charles Hockey in 1992. He was in a coalition government with the PDs. And the PDs said that they wouldn't continue in government with Hockey. So Hockey had to resign. So that was a coalition party taking down the shock. Whereas here it would be a theshock taking down a coalition minister. I don't. I don't buy this political argument. These people saying. I mean, well, obviously constitutionally he has the ability to do it, but politically it would be an absolute non-runner. You could never do it. To which I say, fuck yes, you could. For this very simple reason, Finofil can make the argument that Simon Coveney misled the doll, either deliberately or accidentally, and he did so in relation to the creation of a job which was to be granted to someone associated with Simon Coveney and his party. If you sack Simon Coveney for that, and I think you're well into sacking now, do you, Michael, and I'm interested in your view on this, do you think there are a load of people in Finnegale HQ who are sitting there going, God, do you know what I'd love to run an election on?
1: This. I would say that you're into minus numbers there.
0: Yeah, we're going to run an election on the basis that... Um, We didn't lie, and it wasn't corruption.
1: Because the irony of this is, so far as we are aware, there are no Fianna Fáil fingers in this pie.
0: I mean, if Martin had any sort of a spine, this would be a godsend to him.
1: This is his chance to say, in defense of transparency and integrity and honesty and blah, 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 we in Fianna Fáil are just going to take a strong stand on this issue and say, no, I'm sorry, there is no way in the world, unless, of course, Leo and Fine Gael decide to collectively lose their minds, there is no way in the world that they're going to bring the government down over this. In fact, they would be maybe happy to, you know, the thing is definitively done. Let's face it, the chances are that T. Shook isn't going to actually sack him, although I think he might, he should do what would happen is that Simon will come sadly to the conclusion that his presence in this government at this difficult and important time is becoming too much of a distraction from proper governance. And he has decided, even though he has done nothing wrong in the interests of the stability of the government and the good of the nation, to resign from his position.
0: I think the, the complicating factor there is that this story was leaked by someone else in Fine Gael who was directly aiming to undermine Simon Coveney.
1: Yeah, and I think that somebody should be looking for his head.
0: I think if Miha Martin were asked to line up Simon Coveney and Simon Harris and just say, you're both out, get your bags, there would be a number of people in Finnegale who might not be happy, but they would be relieved that it's Gary, over. Gary,
1: you say they mightn't be happy. I would, in fact, say that if you listened very carefully you'd hear the sound very faintly of champagne corks, pop, pop, popping. Certainly in parts of North Dublin, certainly in parts of South Dublin, but all over Finnegan. I think that at this stage that the thing was done and dusted. For a start, Simon Harris, within certain constituencies in Ireland, is best, is the best beloved. He's not the best beloved within the Parliamentary Party. Simon Coveney has just made a hames of this, just a pure hames of it. He went on with Dobson, as you said, he said, she didn't lobby. Now, he's been called back for the second time in 10 days to speak to the Doll Committee on the subject. Now, that in itself is deeply embarrassing. And the story that he spun the committee... Mary Lou has parliamentary privilege. I would All I would do is i say say, anybody who wants should go and see what Mary Lou's comment on it is. And I think Mary Lou fairly well sums up the attitude of any reasonable person listening. To Simon's statement. Ministers, Finnegale ministers only found out about the appointment 20 minutes before cabinet. No, we know that's not true. Role wasn't created for her. That's very, very hard to maintain. And the whole process is created by the media. Well, I'm sorry. Now, it has been a kind of joyful to watch Finnegale on social media going through oh, this is just a teapot, storm in a teapot. It's a story about nothing. So fifteen thousand a year part time job for God's sake. What he is talking about? The country, the stage of the country. This is what you're worried about. I mean, it's fantastic to see they're all rolled out and they're all sticking to the story, and nobody is buying
0: it. Whatever about the original cause of the story, I don't. Most of the, I don't think anyone cares about the Zapon part of this anymore. Now it's all about things you told us that actually don't look like they were quite accurate. And Zapone is is in that to an extent. But I don't think she's the main object of focus anymore. And they're going to try and get her before the committee. Because of course they will. <laughs> but uh...
1: Anybody interested in politics knows it is the greatest cliche of Western politics that it's not what you did that gets you screwed. It's shall how would one put it? carefully it is the apparent mischaracterization of the sequence of events that will get you
0: i think that the other problem they've had is this continuous series of small things that might not on their own be enough to make someone go i think you're lying to me but the cumulative effect if you just keep going hmm did you know? so you, you you delete all your phone messages because you you were hacked let's cut to the t-shock D- did he tell you he was ever hacked no i didn't know Really, Simon? You said you never told the t shock. Oh well, I mean it was a data breach, and I uh... and she just—it's just small, continuous things of. But
1: Gary, sorry, there's another one, right? There's the, you the, the deleting of the phone messages, right? There's another part of the stew, and there's so many. This is really like a good chowder. There's little bits of cod, little bits of salmon. Little, the freedom of information requests, right? And there were many of them done by many different people at different times. So now there is this, there is the people are saying that some of the messages were deleted after.
0: Now, Simon is very strong that they were deleted before. Now, Simon also says that that means that uh, under the FOI Act, he was free to delete them, which I think appears to be a subject of um, some considerable pushback from people in that area
1: and controversy shall we say I'm merely observing Gary Whatever the wherever the truth lies that this is yet more confusion in the soup
0: and then in, when people asked where people put in FOIs about whether or not there were uh, messages between Leo and Zippone. and they were told there weren't and then some, subsequently it turns out actually there are all these text messages and when the question of why journalists were told there weren't comes up the response is just the person who dealt with that FOI has moved to a different department.
1: And um, wasn't there something to do with Leo being on holiday at some stage?
0: Yes, you see, he was on holiday when they were doing the FOI, so they never requested his phone records. But that person is basically dead now and uh, they've gone to Canada or um, somewhere that doesn't have phones and we can't release the names because of oh GDPR or something like that. And it all just comes across as slightly panicked and sloppy and like they really don't have a like handle on what's happening.
1: And none of these things are in and of themselves you would feel huge, although in other countries they would actually, each individual event would be actually taken as a, quite a serious thing. But here, but they are, I'm back to my aunts. What they're doing is that just so many of them, they're just covering the body politics they're starting to eat it away.
0: And as we said before, there's nothing else to talk about.
1: Nothing. Well, we could be... We, well, Gary, we could be talking about the fact that there won't be any electricity when it comes to Christmas, but apparently we don't want to talk about it. Well, we want to talk about it, but, and the Business Post does, but it doesn't seem to be that very many other people do.
0: No, the problem they have there is journalists love this kind of story, because it's not just one story. Someone tells you something, and you can just go to another person and go, did you know about this? And then that's a second story, and a third story, and a fourth, and it just keeps getting more and more complicated but in a way journalists can understand very easily because they've been working on each piece and that creates a big problem for politicians because journalists don't have a lot of time for long-form investigative stuff and to be honest a lot of them aren't good at it but you don't need to be for this you just need to be able to call a person and then call another person and you just keep dropping popular stories and um, on that metric it's probably not going to stop.
1: And we have no clue where it's going to go next, because it has now also reached the point where I suspect that anybody who is even vaguely connected to any of this, whether they were, for example, one of the 50 elect who attended the party in the Marion, or were some way connected with the job or being asked for advice, because remember, that was effectively what was happening. Catherine was asking uh, for some career advice from Simon. That was all. She may have asked other people for career advice, and I suspect at this stage, anybody that's discovered will simply tell the truth because it's becoming it's come to the point where it's just become so sort of radioactive and toxic. Oh God, no! They'll just say straight off. Well, I was asked this and I said that, and she said this, and he was there and I was here, and and that's not what you want. (laughs) Nobody's going to stonewall. Nobody's going to put a straight bat and say I'm saying nothing. It's all going to come out, and it's going to bit by bit. There's so many little bits of it just. Keeps giving and keeps giving. And frankly, the story that we he, we heard from the... Uh, he gave to the committee was just...
0: I believe he said it was um, inexact, sloppy. Finnegale HQ has been trying to get people in the party to defend this. And my understanding, Michael, is they haven't got a lot of takers on this. And if you have seen, let's say, Neil Richmond's attempt to do so earlier uh, yesterday... It's not an easy thing. Whatever about the base story, the Zapone thing. That no longer matters. Now you're defending, is this lobbying? Is this corruption? Did one of your ministers lie to a dial committee? If it's not a lie, exactly what happened? How did information go missing? Is that believable? You're not talking about Zapone at all. You're talking about things that people may actually care about and make you sound like a liar. And my understanding is people do not want to touch you. And I think those people are very well advised.
1: I asked a member of the Oroctus, a Mifinigian member of the Oireachtas, uh, whether they would be uh, rolling out in the near future to support and defend the people involved. And I received a text back saying, at the moment I am am conducting a silent retreat at a small Tibetan, a, a small Buddhist monastery near Lhasa. I will be available for comments sometime after Halloween. And I think that just about sums up the reaction, I think, of most of the people within the parliamentary party at the moment.
0: Now, I think there was uh, something that happened yesterday, which I think might have created some nervousness in areas where it may not have existed before. Because Simon Harris went out for uh, an interview about this, and he was asked, was it lobbying? And he was asked all these things, and he got through it. Harris is a competent media performer. He gets through it. And then seconds before the show cuts, seconds, they just asked Harris... What he thinks of people leaking from cabinet yeah, what did it, is that a is that a bad thing Simon Bad,
1: bad, oh, oh bad thing, bad thing
0: and I would imagine that's not a question Simon Harris wants to have to answer again.
1: well there are a lot of people who, who are of that opinion, Gary, for, rightly or wrongly, for whatever reason they how old that opinion, I don't know, but for somebody, a lot of people are of the opinion that Simon will be uncomfortable with that that line of questioning.
0: There does seem to be a a thought that he might find it deeply uncomfortable um and it's a sort of it's i imagine that was a pre-planned question maybe it was just off the cuff but it very much has the air of a um well you know what we might call in the trade Michael a fuck you question <laughs> a question purely designed to create trouble for you down the road
1: yeah it, we have it on tape now
0: yeah you i did expect it if they had more time to be like do you think should happen to that person if they're caught? Co- you, would you be comfortable saying they should be sacked or removed from the party, <laughs> or prosecuted? But it could. I mean, they breached the constitution, and it could be a criminal affair. I mean, it's actually quite clearly a criminal matter. Do you think the the should seize the phones and find out who it was, Simon? Mmm. Gosh. So I don't think we'll be seeing Simon doing a media appearance on this topic for a while now.
1: If this was London, it would be a question of the the prime minister getting in the special branch, and saying, "Right, lads, get let's get a proper investigation done here. I want the special branch in." Um, I can't see that happening here.
0: No, but I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of Michal Martin, Michael, and as as we you know, the old joke, if you were going, if you wanted to go somewhere, you shouldn't start from here. Yeah. So if, if you're Martin and you want to bring back Finnafal, push it back a little bit in the polls. Hmm. And Fine Gael basically engages in a three, in a fight between several prominent leadership campaigners instigated by one of them trying to stab one of them in the back and not really understanding what he's doing because he's not actually all that smart. Yeah. And you have the chance where you can sack two Fine Gael ministers in a way where on the doorsteps, you'll absolutely be able to convince people it was because of corruption and lying regardless of the truth of it. And instead of doing that, you decide to defend them. Okay, how about this? I'll throw this out as
1: a, a rationalisation. We're all saying, well, I'm certainly saying, and I have been saying, that if, if Martin doesn't act, and act in some kind of very, fairly severe fashion, that he ends up just looking even more weak and ineffectual than he has perhaps up to now. But maybe Michal is thinking, okay, I could sack them. It won't bring down the government. I'm not worried about that, really. But right now, it's my feeling that the most likely place that this, we're going to get pick-up votes is from Fine Gael voters. The floating voter that, that, that went to Fine Gael, the bit that isn't their core vote. We're in a position to take some of that vote. And what's happening now is just really bad for Fine Gael we're sidelined just like I said before I mean there are no up to now we have seen no of all fingers in this pie Fianna Fáil are standing by looking at all of these people doing all this stuff behaving shoddily badly shabbily whatever and he's saying you know what from our perspective just let it go on and on and on we will stand by and we will be shocked and disapproving but for the good of the country and stability we will keep going on with this government because it's a very important time and the pandemic isn't over and the economy is in a perilous state and we need to be here. We have our housing plan which we have to implement and we have many things we need to do. He may think first of all that the perception will be that Fine Gael is problematic and that voters will be turned off for Fine Gael, and when they go looking for a new home they may go to Fianna Fáil. And secondly that this process will in a way have damp- weakened the power at Cabinet of Fine ministers and of Leo to oppose Martin in maybe some of the things that he or Fianna wish to do in the future and that therefore that strategically he may actually be better off just letting this thing roll and roll and play out and play out, because it may be his estimation that while this is damaging Leo and it's damaging Harris and it's damaging Coveny, and maybe gro- globally damaging Finnegale, it's actually not touching Finn And it's not really touching him. Because the idea that he's not a particularly decisive or effectual leader is kind of is this at this stage is priced in. He's not losing anything from that. There's there's no more ground to be lost from that perception. But that strategically, this in the long term may work out for the good of of All I'm just throwing it out there. As a, that may be a, a line of
0: thinking. Before I before I respond to that, Michael, do you think that's likely?
1: I honest to God, I don't know because I have a very conflicted sense about Myanmar. Martin. I have been surprised and disappointed about a hell of a lot that Martin has done and yet I can't help but remember that there was a time he was a very very effective politician he was when he was minister for health when he would go on and they I mean crisis from crisis that's the nature of the health service it just it's you it's staggering from crisis to crisis he they couldn't lay a glove on the guy he has a capacity to deal with a brief which is he was as good or better than anybody in the doll for his capacity to take a brief, read it, understand it, digest it, and then re- and re- reproduce it on, on TV. He ends up as leader of Fianna Fáil, which is not an easy task, at even, at the, even at the worst of times. So it's not that he is a... We can't just say that this, he is an incapable politician with no abilities. He came up at a time in the 90s when Fianna Fáil was a fairly competitive political party. I mean, not just out, not just at elections, but internally. There were a lot of big hitters in Fianna Fáil. and Michal Martin was in the cabinet and in and positions like education and health, which were in high profile important positions. He has done very well historically in his own constituency. I know what you. I know. I know the point you are making. I am just saying that if we have to stand back and try and be reasonable about this, while we might look at a lot of stuff we done and think, "Jesus, come on, Mihal," you know, the the old cliche from sport, you know, form is temporary but class is permanent. He hasn't become a bad politician overnight, or at least put it this way, he can't become a completely bad politician
0: overnight. I would, I would make this point. That was Miho Martin working under someone. This has been Miho Martin. Where he is, he is at the head. He is handling the strategic. He is handling everything. And there are lots of people who can't make that jump, who perform incredibly well at a tactical level, or they can do the job. But then when you ask them to do the higher level stuff, they can't. It's a different skill set. And I would also point out that Michal Martin created the HSE.
1: Yes. Yes, that's fairly, fairly bad. But uh, but on top, just one last point. In two thousand. And 11, a lot of people were predicting the end of Fianna Fáil. That was it. Fianna Fáil was it. I didn't buy that for reasons we don't have to go into now. But I didn't think it was. It was, there, was any, there was this inevitable process that Fianna Fáil had to be dead. It was very, very deep in trouble. It was never going to go back to a party that could happily expect to get 70 or 80 seats in the Dáil. But it wasn't dead. Michal Martin is Taoiseach. And there are a lot of people who would not have given you a heavy... Uh, would not have given you anything but a very long price that 10 years after the crash that there would be a Taoiseach of the country who was a leader of also of Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil. are also in the doll and have more seats than Fine Gael. Again, a lot of people in 2011 would not have predicted that within 10 years you would see a situation where Fianna Fáil would be a larger parliamentary party than Fine Gael.
0: So... I, I, I would take your point on that largely because I was one of those people. I just... Well, he would never get into this position because he was performing so poorly, but that's politics. Sometimes you end up there. But on your point, Finnfal do have more seats than Finnegale. But does it feel like that, Michael? No, it does not. And isn't that really weird?
1: It is very weird. I talk to people about this a lot, and particularly in the last couple of months, the number of people who really do believe that Finnfal is the smaller party. Is really interesting. And to be honest with you, at times, I have that kind of notion in my head myself that, that it feels like Finnegale is the dominant party.
0: And you have Finnefall hold the Thaishoc's position. They are the largest party in Parliament, and yet there's just a feeling that they're finished. Yeah, it's weird. Which is bizarre. It's like the, if it's accurate, it's like the walking wounded in war. They're so badly injured, they just don't realise they're dead. And they just keep going until they fall over. Or it could be wrong. And we've just, everyone has just, or we certainly, have convinced ourselves that this is going terribly when actually it's going quite well. Now, I don't think that's the case. But it's just an odd situation they found themselves in.
1: I don't think it's going well. But I think that underneath all of this, and this is the point, we won't go into this at detail now because it's a conversation maybe for another time. We're already well into well past the hour, and I think it was was it Barry Walsh wrote that article a few weeks ago about the problems in Finnegale. Now, I I have said to you, and I I still believe, I think that Leo actually is doing a really good job for for Finnegale at, at a perception level. And one of the things I think is because I think I think it was Barry made the point that Finnegale, if you actually look at it, had a really bad general election last time out. They only just came in the last couple of weeks. The last not couple of weeks, the last, the last few days of the election, they had an uptick which brought them back and also brought Fianna, and Fianna Fáil had really bad shall we say election from, from polling point of view that they were, they declined during the campaign period. They had a bad local election and they had a bad general election before that. They are now back at the same kind of level that they were in 2001 when Michael Noonan lost that election so badly that it was he had to go immediately. It was considered to be a disaster for so many of the, the top echelon of uh, Fine Gael lost their seats. We are so fixed on the problem of Fianna Fáil that we haven't noticed that there may actually be a real problem with Fine Gael and that there has been a fragmenting of politics in Ireland which has occurred, partly as a result of the crash, which obviously had massive effects on the nature of politics in the country, but also part of a wider movement in politics across the Western world, which has seen the decline first and foremost of social democratic parties, and then laterally the traditional, shall we say, Christian democratic centre-right Tory conservative party types, and the rise of green politics, the rise of extreme left-wing politics, and especially the rise of populist authoritarian Conservative right-wing parties, shall we call them, socially conservative, interventionally left-wing, but populist, patriotic, nationalist-type politics. So there's been a fragmenting which has been happening, and I think that we're seeing that here. And that means that the normal politics, I wonder, Gary, at times when we do the kind of analysis, and that's maybe a big word for any of us do, that we're doing, we're still a little bit stuck in fighting the last war, you know?
0: It has actually been quite interesting just to watch this happen with Finnegan. Um, because it, you're focusing one child, you know the Finnafal child is just a disaster. So you focus on that, and then you turn around to the Finnegale child, and it's just repeatedly slamming its own face into a pillar. Ha. You're Like, how long have you been doing that? And do you plan to stop before you die? We have talked about the fact that there's a weird,
1: there are weird gaps in the Irish political landscape, holes, shall we say where nobody is representing that particular viewpoint. Now, historically, Fine Gael has been the party of the centre-right in Ireland. Now, whatever people might think about Fine Gael, or Fianna Fáil rather, Fianna Fáil has historically been and certainly seen itself as a party of the centre-left. Socially, maybe conservative and all that, but economically, whatever. Now, at times, it has moved well to the, shall we say, to the more traditional conservative right, particularly under people like Hawi, uh, Charlie with Charlie McCreevy and Ray McSharry, and then on, and, and, uh, Albert, and I would say early, early Bertie, later Bertie, slightly different. But Fine Gael, and this is the thing that I, I hope I'm getting it right with Barry. It was Barry Walsh who said this. Apologies to Barry if it wasn't. Fine Gael as a genuine center right party at the moment, it doesn't feel like that. Policy-wise, shape-wise, it isn't really filling, filling that, isn't that, that role. And there are lots of those holes in this. And, it, and the, his, his argument is that unless Finnegale starts to recover something of that reality, rather than simply the perception that it is centre-right simply because the Irish
0: Times says it is, that's not going to be good enough for long enough. My perception of the two main parties, there's something about them that doesn't feel quite... Solid anymore, yes. it doesn't feel quite real whether whether or not you liked them, you knew what Finoal under a hern was like, depending on the period and what a hern needed to. You knew it was like under hahi, you knew what Finnegal was at different points in time. Now I don't really know what they're, and talking to their people, a lot of them don't really seem to know either. It just seems to be good things, not bad things. In a sensible time. And I think you can see that in the cabinet leaks and the whole... A cabinet minister breached the constitution pretty clearly. In a way that should be a criminal matter. Everyone assumes they know which minister that was. And the apparent uh, response from Leo that was, sure he denies it, what can we do? Then you have Martin coming out and basically saying he's not going to sack anyone. I think that portrays a certain lack of seriousness... About these parties,
1: would I say, Gary? Is it a hollowing out? To reference, to reference something we were talking about offline before, that there's a hollowing out of political parties, and it's just what we're talking about. Maybe it's a crisis of the the very idea of what political parties traditionally were.
0: I mean, not to get too philosophical, Michael, but nothing innately matters. People determine what matters, and traditionally those were certain things seemed to be worth protecting or seen to be worth mm. holding or to adhering to whether they were principles ideologies documents such as constitutions or even simple things like you know your faith your family your country those things there were there were ac- there were certain axioms
1: that people f- could cluster i remember when I was in college, there was a professor. The professor of history was a guy called Paddy Corish. And he was a very great historian, very brilliant man. A bit of a curmudgeon, but he was he was also very funny. And in, his, in the last sermon he gave, he was also Monsignor Corish. He had briefly been president of Maynooth in his own words. He lasted a year because he did the only decent thing. He went mad. He, in his last... Um, sorry, he said, I remember... You're a crazy mixed-up generation, but don't worry, so were we. But at least we had certain certainties around which we could congregate. And there were three central ones. One, to be Irish. He said we knew what it was to be Irish. First of all, it was probably to be Catholic. Secondly, it was possibly to speak Irish. But most of all, it was to believe that partition was a sin against God and against man. and it was a good line, and it was funny, and there's probably a, a, a lot of truth to it. In a funny way, maybe a hell of a lot of politics was ultimately about our search for identity post-22, and that was so much bound up with partition and with the North and the, the conflict and the competition between these two great political parties, which have their roots ultimately in the Civil War. I wonder, is it, I mean, we're talking about getting philosophical, the death of, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the death of ideology, the end of history, and then, in a sense, with the Good Friday Agreement, the end of the North and the issue of of, what it, of the nation and the, the national question, in a sense, has it emptied them out? And in a wider sense, they're also just part of a more global hollowing out of politics anyway but yeah you say that you say that there were certain things you could hang around there were certain core principles they seem to be gone. there is no, i can't think of something that you could ascribe to either of these parties and say this is a core belief
0: they occasionally very occasionally actually will say something as a core belief but when you look at their actions they don't seem to not only do they not seem to care terribly much about it but they don't even seem to think it's important at all.
1: But guy, okay, you you you've talked in the past about the the phenomenon of the gap between the shall we say, the the the, the policy of the the elite policymakers of a political party and the supporters of a political party, and how some parties there's a bigger gap than others. If you look at of Fall, which historically had a close was had a closer identity between its members and its say its parliamentary party or its leadership than any other party now and I, i'm not talking about the substantive issue shall we say but if you look at the the gap that has developed between the leadership and the party if we look at the ardesh and votes that were taken in the and Ar, various ardesh on say something like say abortion and the, the behavior then of the leadership and the direction that the government has gone and then in Finnegan again, if you look, if you ask Finnegan members, the classic core of Finnegan, what they would have as their core beliefs and what the party considers to be core and important, it seems to me that there's a gap growing there that is ultimately means that the, the what we used to call the grassroots are, are just going to die because there is no vital connection anymore between the, between the roots, if you like, and the, the great tree that's over it, the branches, the, the leaves, whatever metaphor we want to use for the leadership.
0: I mean, I, I suppose just to, to sum up, because we're well over time on this, which is a, a question that I just kind of leave open-ended, and I think could be interesting for several of our listeners who I know who are involved with Fine Gael. Fine Gael sells itself as the party of law and order. A Fine Gael cabinet minister breached the constitution, and in doing so, committed a criminal act. Clearly, unambiguously, when that was brought to the leadership of Finnegale, they gave a, a response that basically said, should, what can we do? When there are an array of tools they could use to find out, they don't care to use those. How exactly can you be the party of law when your leadership at a cabinet level has no interest in one of its members breaching the constitution? And why would we expect that there would be any concern for law at a lower level given that the Constitution is the root of law in this country. And I, for a party that professes to care about law and includes many legal professionals, I do not understand how little you can care about that. And yes, obviously there are political implications, but at the same time, if you're going to have no standards, and I mean, we're not talking about a low-level thing here, we're talking about a cabinet minister breaching the Constitution, That should be a serious matter. And if it's not, are you a political party at all? Of any type?
1: Or are you a vehicle for office?
0: Yes, I... I, Actually, thank you for that, Michael. You've nicely summed up where I meant to go. (laughs) I'm glad I helped. We will be back on Friday. Bye-bye.